We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to Pop Torah with Rabbi Iznopf and Olitsky, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Welcome to Pop Torah, the podcast where we talk about pop culture from a Jewish perspective and look at Judaism through the lens of pop culture. As always, we are your hosts. I am Rabbi Michael Knopf. And I am Rabbi Jesse Olitsky. And today we are talking about the new Disney Plus series, The Right Stuff. Jesse, you want to tell us a little bit about this new show? Sure. The first two episodes of The Right Stuff dropped on Disney Plus last week. And the show is really uh, an anthology series that focuses on the Mercury 7. It's uh, based on the book by the same name that came out in 79 by Tom Wolfe, also based on the 1983 movie adaptation of that book. Uh, It's tells about the start of NASA and this top secret, uh, which eventually became a public launch of the Mercury 7 astronauts and their families on their goal to go to the moon. This is Disney Plus's first um, collaboration with their Nat Geo brand that that Disney bought National Geographic. And this is their first series that has come out on Disney Plus under the National Geographic label. We know that other series are coming out under the Star Wars label, others uh, like The Mandalorian season two is coming out soon. Other series like WandaVision is coming out over the winter under the Marvel Studios label. This is their first National Geographic label to come out on the streaming series. The show will focus on the astronauts of the Mercury 7 and their families and that dynamic, uh, not just the race to go to outer space, but also um, the PR perspective, the public relations perspective to sell America on supporting the efforts of the Mercury 7. And as we saw in the most recent episode, uh, as a result to sell Congress as well to up its funding for this NASA program. But I think that based on the first two episodes, the three main astronauts that we'll focus on is of course, John Glenn. John Glenn was the first astronaut to orbit Earth, the first U.S. astronaut to orbit Earth. Uh, Alan Shepard, there's a tension between the two of them. Alan Shepard was the first U.S. astronaut to go into outer space. And also the interesting dynamic of Gordon Cooper uh, and his family dynamic and having to keep that safe, keep that a secret, because interestingly, they really wanted a family man to be a part of the Mercury 7. I believe that is to make sure they had something to come home to. They, they had a family to come home to when they weren't going to uh, risk their lives entirely. They were going to make sound and safe decisions. In some ways, the first couple of episodes reminded me of Mad Men about these uh, men in powerful positions that uh, were boozing all the time. They were drinking and sleeping around and the subplot of their housewives who did whatever was asked of them, who stayed at home, who took care of their children. But to me, there were really a couple of ideas that stood out about this series that I think will play out. One is 
interestingly, the idea of NASA in general, that it wasn't about space exploration and that's not the way that the show and the series presents it. It was really about the Cold War and how Russia already had gone into outer space and NASA was a branch of the government. All of the original astronauts that were being considered were military pilots only decades later to those who did not have a military background were they considered uh, for outer space missions and were they trained to be astronauts. But here specifically, NASA was an arm and a branch of the military and space exploration was only secondary to uh, taking an advantage in outer space over Russia in the Cold War. Mike, I'm wondering what you make of this idea of the war games of outer space in the universe from a Jewish perspective. So it's a really great question. I, I just I want to comment on a, a couple of things that you said. I, I, you know, I, when I was watching the show, just just uh, to get this out of the way, when I was watching the show, it did also have strike me as having a Mad Men vibe, and you know, it made me feel like you know, here is uh, Disney trying to get into the prestige TV space. Um, that you know really for so long was was dominated and, and exemplified by Mad Men, uh, and so this is you know it's, it, it struck me as a very kind of like Disney version of of Mad Men. You know this kind of we're going to focus on Americana uh, and dialed back a little bit some of the um, uh, steamier aspects of Mad Men, uh, but still keep some of those features in place. Uh, it it um, you know, maybe this will change as the series goes on. I mean, it, you know, it's, it's of course focused on a particular time and place, uh, but, it, but it was very striking to me uh, to have a, a, a series in, in 2020 um, focused, you know, virtually exclusively on, uh, on, on you know, a half dozen or, or more uh, white men and, and uh, basically have almost exclusively white faces um, in in the show so much so that I found myself you know that it was very hard to uh, to to uh, tell characters apart for these uh, first couple of episodes. Hopefully, it'll get better over time. Are you saying uh, all white men look the same? I'm saying all men, all white men look alike to me. Um, you know, and so uh, I, I you know, of course, John Glenn and Alan Shepard are. Are, are famous personalities, so it was a little bit easier to distinguish uh, them. John Glenn looks a little bit different, uh, played by Patrick J. Adams in, in the show, um, is uh, looks a little bit different than his uh, peers, so it was easy easier to distinguish him. But I but I just you know I just kind of noted that um, that 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 it, it stood out to me in, in that way, and it also had the Mad Men vibe uh, in in the sense that it um, one of its protagonists. Uh, uh, Wally in the show is played by Mad Men's Aaron Stanton. Um, so, you know, it, it very, I think, deliberately has a Mad Men connection in, in that way. Um, but I think you're, you're right that it, you know, it, it, it does raise a, a really, you know, profound and interesting question about, um, you know, the, the role that uh, the, you know, the military plays has played in, um, in, in driving uh, scientific discovery, and you know, sometimes the you know the, the intersection of of those two things, you know, and it's it's certainly true that there are you know um, technologies that that are now commonplace um, that we wouldn't have if it weren't uh, for you know military development and application first, right? GPS, cell phone technologies. Assuming that these didn't come from you know. Uh, uh, alien technology um, discovered and kept secret in Area 54, but that's a different podcast. Area 51. Uh, Area 51, excuse me. Studio 54 is a different thing. Um, <laughs> Quite different. But, 
<laughs> but anyway, that's a different podcast. We won't quite get into that. But it, so it's not lost on me that there are many things that we, you know, that we have and enjoy and benefit from that we wouldn't have, that we probably wouldn't have or wouldn't have, you know, uh, um, you know, in the same time frame, um, had they not been developed and, and applied in, in military context as well. On the other hand, you know, you have, you know, what uh, all the way back in, in the uh, uh, in the early 1950s, President uh, Dwight Eisenhower called, you know, the military industrial complex, you know, the, the notion that um, that there is a sort of feedback loop in, you know, military um, adventurism uh, and the uh, and the business of supplying the military with uh, with with the the equipment and the tools that they need uh, to uh, to engage in you know military action and how you know um, it, it's not always clear which is the dog and which is the tail uh, of of those two things and so I think that that's you know also potentially true in in respect to the space race or what what the right stuff um i never read the book by tom wolf although i did see the the movie the 1983 movie came out the year i was born but we watched it um i don't know if you ever did but we watched it when i think i was in seventh grade in or, or sixth grade science uh we were learning was earth science but we also learned about uh space and in, in earth science we watched the right stuff um as uh, as as part of that class i remember very distinctly um and uh, and then also around the same time was the episode of The Simpsons in season eight, where uh, where Homer is tapped to be an astronaut. Um, one of the best episodes of The Simpsons ever, which deliberately played on some of those um, uh, iconic aspects of of the Right Stuff film. Uh, but what one of the things that I think that the show really drills down on um, is the are the ways in which the the NASA program, the Mercury Initiative, um, was um, you know was really not about scientific exploration, scientific discovery, but was really about um, military advantage against uh, against the Russians. The Russians, you know, beat. Uh, the United States uh, in in into space with with Sputnik satellite, um, and then uh, uh, beat the United States into space by sending a uh, a manned mission um, outside of the uh, Earth's atmosphere. Um, and so, uh, so the 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 series is kind of set against that backdrop that what the NASA program is really angling for um, is to catch up with the Russians um, and then ultimately to surpass the Russians uh, and, uh, and, and uh, win the Cold War. Um, it, you know, it's, uh, it, it's, it's murky at, at best. It's, it's complex at, at best um, about whether, um, you know, first of all, the, the morality of the Cold War in, in the first place is, um, is I think, a, you know, a, a, a challenging question. Um, one that uh, I wonder if we would think about differently, you know, had we been alive in the 1950s, had we been serving sure. as rabbis in the 1950s uh, versus now, um, whether the, uh, the, the battle against uh, the, the advance of communism, um, you know, was that a righteous battle or was it not a righteous battle? Um, or was it uh, a battle, you know, for um, economic and military advantage that uh, that that actually had, you know, um, a, a lot of um, innocent casualties, um, you know, on uh, that that first, you know, the uh, it, it created a political consensus in this country um, that uh, um, that came at the expense of um, of of 
the advance of civil rights for African Americans. Um, it created uh, military actions around the world that, um, uh, that 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 came at the expense of you know untold thousands of lives. Um, and, and so you know so so you know we call it a cold war. There were aspects of it that were hot. Um, and then there were, uh, you know, that, that it had, you know, many, many casualties. Um, and so, you know, seen against that backdrop, I, you know, I, I, I wonder um, whether um, the Mercury mission, whether the space program, um, you know, as an extension of that Cold War um, can be seen as moral. There was a very deliberate conversation about this, you know, in the late 1960s during the Apollo program, you know, it was a, a, a tremendous human triumph, of course, um, and an extraordinary advance in, in science and technology. Um, but, you know, many people, I think, appropriately wondered at the time, you know, why we were spending, you know, billions of dollars to put uh, a, a white man's footprints on the moon uh, when um, when we were uh, when we were you know when we had problems of inequality and poverty um, that were unresolved here at home. Um, so, well, I think Mike that um, even if NASA and the space program in general was launched for military reasons and for reasons of uh, war with other nations to protect ourselves uh, probably in a way that is unnecessary and arguably the same arguments that we see today that we need to increase defense spending even though we spend more on our military than any other country in the world many of those largest countries combined we still spend more and we've continued to increase that defense spending to me, if the result is space exploration and we learn from that, uh, there's something beautiful about that. And you saw that in the show in the first two episodes in the way that John Glenn spoke, right? That John Glenn was the only one, one of the fellow astronauts that were applying to the program mentioned this. He said that John Glenn was the only one who talked about outer space, that the others were talking about fast cars and women and going fast and, and being first and the competition of it. And John Glenn was looking at the sky and looking at the stars and talking about how there were more stars in the sky than grains of sand on the earth. And he was all about the exploration. It reminded me of uh, a quote that Sam Seaborn uh, on the West Wing makes that uh, – Aaron Sorkin famously wrote from, it's from a season two episode when they were talking about going to Mars and NASA going to Mars. And they said, why will we go to Mars? What's the point? And he said, cause that's next because we came out of the cave and we looked over the hill and we saw fire and we crossed the ocean and we pioneered the West and we took to the sky. The history of man is hung on a timeline of exploration and this is what's next. And even if going to outer space, even if the launch of the Mercury seven was really about space warfare, uh, you know, all jokes about the current non-existent launch of the Space Force aside, uh, if the Mercury 7 was really about warfare in outer space during the Cold War, there still is a beauty that comes from the exploration of the universe, and that's what was next. You know, it's interesting. I mean, uh, 
John Glenn's characters, uh, you know, certainly at least in the first couple of episodes, you know, portrayed as the, as, you know, the sort of altruistic um, hero of the Mercury Seven. Uh, and, uh, and yet, you know, uh, yes, there's an aspect of, of him that's depicted as, you know, wanting to embark on this mission for the, for the sake of, of exploration and, and discovery. Um, but it also very clearly depicts him as being driven by ego, right? Like he, you know, he wants to be the first, right? He wants to be remembered by history. He wants, you know, immortality. That's one of the reasons that, uh, that you know, in the second episode where they get a, um, a, a essentially a PR firm, uh, uh, an agent to, uh, to, to manage the affairs of the uh, Mercury 7, um, that John Glenn initiates it um, because he, you know, he wants to uh, drive the story of it. Um, and he wants to kind of uh, sell the heroism of what they're doing and, and you know, make himself and, and others Im immortal by, by doing it. Um, it you know, it, it strikes me that, um, you know, the role that, that what, you know, what the show is kind of depicting there is, you know, not only, you know, what, uh, um, how sometimes uh, morally questionable things like military adventurism uh, and military advantage are wrapped up in, in scientific exploration and, and discovery. Uh, but also, you know, how, um, you know, selfish motivations, ego is, uh, is, is wrapped up in those things too. There's, uh, as we know, Jewish tradition has this idea that every person has a Yetzer Hara and Yetzer HaTov, right? Every person has you know, you might call it an, a, an inclination for good and an inclination for evil. I actually like to define Yitzhar Ra and Yitzhar Tov as a, as a selfish in, inclination and a selfless inclination. So Yitzhar HaTov ha is a selfless inclination. And Yitzhar Ra is a selfish inclination. And the reason I say that is because the, the Talmud actually does a thought experiment at one point that, that says, you know, well, if the Yitzhar ha Ra is, is bad, right, why would God have created it? Right? Why? Why? Why doesn't God just create human beings with a with with a yetzer hatov? One answer, of course, is because God wants human beings to have free will, and if we only have a yetzer hatov, we don't have the ability to choose between uh, doing good and doing evil. But um, another answer to the question is let's let's imagine a world without a yetzer hara. And what they discovered is that nobody was engaging in business anymore. Nobody was uh, procreating, having children anymore. Um, nobody was doing any of the, nobody was uh, engaging in, in uh, scientific discovery anymore. It turns out that, you know, uh, that, and I can say this as a, as a rabbi too, right? This, you know, part of if we're being honest, right, part of what I do as a rabbi um, is, is selfless, right? I, I want to serve people and I want to um, serve the Jewish community and I want to, uh, um, you know, advance the ideals of our tradition. But some of it is selfish. I mean, first of all, I want to make a living, right? And uh, this is a way to make a living. Um, and, uh, and, you know, and uh, so, uh, so I think that that's present in, in the right stuff. And it's one of the things that the show I, I hope is going to explore um, is, you know, that, uh, that, you know, that John Glenn, Alan Shepard for sure, right, are, um, are, are engaging in this, you know, in part because they want to advance the ideals of the United States. They want to advance the interests of the United States. They um, want to engage in scientific discovery. Uh, but, but there's also a, a Yitzhar Hara aspect of it too, that is not 
that's not necessarily bad, right? Uh, especially if it's serving a, a positive end, but it does point out the, the fact that, you know, our, uh, our selfish inclination um, uh, is present in, in even some of the selfless things that we do. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's sometimes hard to separate the two. Well, it's interesting that the idea of ego it plays out very differently between Glenn and Shepard, right? John Glenn, even before he's part of the Mercury 7, he's on the cover of a magazine uh, and he is very much- uh, He was on the, Name That Tune. The, 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 the PR diva, if you will. Alan Shepard does not want to be interviewed. He does not want anybody to know about his private life. Uh, the reporter from Life Magazine has to convince him that they're on his side and it's really just about presenting him in a positive manner and in a positive light, his ego comes from his desire to be best, his desire to be first, his desire to upstage others, where John Glenn's ego is more, it looks like a desire to be loved and accepted by others. It's, it's the-, the or, remem or remembered in, by posterity, right? Sure, to, to, right, a, yeah. a legacy question. Have a legacy. Yeah. But it's, it's the Rabbi Simcha Bonham question that we often talk about, the Hasidic teaching that you keep the piece of paper in each pocket. One says, I am but dust and ashes. And one said, the world was created for my sake. I remember during the 2016 New Hampshire primary debates, when one of our rabbinic colleagues actually quoted that and asked Hillary Clinton during the primary debate, you know, where does her ego come into play? Suggesting that actually for people in positions of power and prestige, including the Mercury Seven, for those who are doing things that have never been done and exploring the unknown, as that West Wing quote said, right, this is what's next that they need that bit of ego in order to explore what's next, in order to believe that they can achieve what's next. Right. You know, I, it's not lost in me that, the, um, that America's founders deliberately built that into the system, right? They, they, they believed, they, they sort of understood um, that humans, um, even the best of us, are at least partially motivated by self-interest. And so they said, well, instead of pretending that that self-interest doesn't exist, let's build it into the system and say that, you know, uh, assuming that people are going to be um, acting at least in part on self-interest, how can we uh, ensure that, uh, that, that people's desire for, you know, for their career, for their success, you know, for their reelection, right? That that um, serves the interests of the public um, rather than, than mitigates against it. So we have guardrails against, um, against corrupt self-interest, right? But, uh, but uh, the presumption is uh, that you are going to serve your constituents well, right? If you want them to vote for you again. Uh, and, uh, you know, so it's, it's not um, uh, inherently a bad thing, right? It's just a matter of um, how you relate to your ego and how you sort of are, are aware of your own ego. I think that that's the power of that question and, and of that teaching from Rabbi Simcha Bonham is not, you know, the question of, you know, whether or not we will, uh, you know, be concerned with our legacy, with our, you know, with our, our own or our family's well-being and on and on. Um, uh, but it's a question of whether we are aware of the fact that we are concerned about those things and are, are able to determine um, how we're going to apply those interests um, uh, in, in, in our life, right? Are we, are we gonna be uh, enslaved to those passions or are we going to dominate them in some way? Sure. 
Mike, I'm wondering if we could shift gears slightly and talk a little bit about uh, the Jewish perspective of space exploration in general. Um, our, our biblical text talks about creation. And well, we understand as uh, modern thinkers, as progressive rabbis, that um, the creation story in Torah that uh, we actually read this week in Parshat Bereshit um, is not scientific, that we can believe in evolution. We could believe in the world being created over millions and millions of years and still appreciate the, um, the lessons learned from the creation narrative. But the Torah also talks about creation of the world. And um, well, it does talk about the world being null and void. It talks about creation of stars and, and all of that. Uh, Torah talks about the creation of the world, and even our own liturgy refers to God as Melech HaOlam, um, which we often translate as ruler of the universe, but really means right, sovereign of this world, uh, which we think of as right, ruler of the earth. And when we begin exploring the universe and really begin to appreciate that we are just a small speck in this universe, that there are other planets out there, they're very well could be other life forms on other planets out there that we just have not uh, found yet, we have not explored yet. From a Jewish perspective, what do we make of that idea of space exploration? Well, you know, this is something that's uh, been debated uh, and uh, a matter of some, in some ways, consternation for religious thinkers and religious leaders, you know, since the time of Galileo and Copernicus, uh, you know, and it's, uh, 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 for, for many years and still today, um, there are religious thinkers and religious leaders who see um, scientific discovery and in, and in particular um, astrophysics um, as, um, as, as a threat to, uh, to you know, religious understanding and religious order for precisely the reason that you're talking about. But you know, I, I actually don't think um, that uh, when we call God, you know, Melech HaOlam, um, that, uh, um, that even our ancient ancestors uh, thought about that um, in, in, so, in so narrow a way. I mean, the first, they certainly um, may not have uh, uh, realized that there was a, uh, an expansive universe, but, they, but for, for, you know, and this is reflected even in, in the Talmud, um, that they certainly had an awareness that, uh, that, there, was, that there were worlds beyond our own. Uh, that you know that there were other planets that stars were exist. So they so when when they said Melech HaOlam, they didn't literally just mean you know this Earth um, because they knew that the moon existed outside the Earth. They knew that the stars existed outside the Earth, so on and so forth. Right. So so I don't think it's it's um, it's it's you know quite so literal as as uh, as it might seem. And I also do think that uh, that Jewish tradition had a had a sense um, well before Einstein actually. Um, uh, made it, proved it scientifically, but had a sense that there was a, uh, an intimate relationship between space and time, you know, so that when I say Melech HaOlam, um, I actually don't think it's only talking about a, a, a physical Olam, but also a temporal Olam, right? Olam, and we say this actually uh, in our traditional liturgy, Le Olam Va'ed, 
right? Um, is an expression meaning forever and ever, right? So why, how is it that, uh, uh, that uh, a term that sometimes is literally translated as world comes to mean a phrase that is forever and ever, right? Uh, because I think that, um, that our tradition understood uh, that there's a that there's a, a relationship between space and time such that when they when you talk about olam being you know all that is right it also talks about um in in the sense of time too being the expanse of all the time there is right in other words eternal right so when we say melech olam it, it actually could also be translated i think even traditionally as eternal sovereign so i so i think that judaism um has already built in um, it's not a, even a matter of reinterpretation. It's, it's actually um, embedded within the classical tradition, um, a, a sense of the um, uh, expansiveness um, of, uh, of what God is and, and what our cosmos is. So that's, that's number one. Um, number two is, you know, when I think about um, all of the extraordinary scientific discoveries that have come through space exploration and you know, the, the advance of um, astronomy and cosmology uh, in, you know, over the last, you know, half century or more. Um, to me, it makes God greater than just a, you know, sort of like um, parochial deity governing a small blue marble, right? Like if, if you know, if, if God um, is actually uh, if God actually is the um, the creator of of the cosmos, right, or the or the creative force within the cosmos, depending on how you uh, how you understand God, like uh, that that God is both both pervades everything that is, but also in some way transcends all that is. Um, that you know, it, that makes God so much more incredible, so much more miraculous. My my teacher, Rabbi Brad Artson, um, you know says that uh, traditional theology sometimes talks about God as supernatural. Um, and that, uh, but he says that that actually, you know, uh, limits both God and nature, because it turns out that nature is actually so much more expansive and miraculous than people normally give it credit for in the, in the sort of like Newtonian way of viewing uh, what, what nature is. So rather, he, he says that, that nature itself is super comma natural exclamation point. Uh, that, uh, that, that, what, that all that we discover and the, and the advance of scientific discovery um, shows us that we really live in a, a, a dynamic and self-surpassing, miraculous universe, um, and, uh, and and that adds to the grandeur of God, the greatness of God, rather than diminishes it. One other thing, right? And this is actually embedded in, in a traditional Jewish text, Mishnah, in uh, Tractate Sanhedrin, chapter four, Mishnah number five, um, talks about the creation story of the first human being in, in the Torah, which maybe the rabbis of the of the Talmud saw as literal, although I'm, I'm not positive that that's true. Um, and like you said, you know, we today um, can kind of hold the, um, a, a truth that that story was, was not meant to be a scientific story, but, but rather a, a mythological story that was trying to convey deeper truths um, than, than just a factual truth about how humans came to be. But the rabbis of the Mishnah say, you know, why was it that the Torah says that God created one human being at first? They offer several reasons among them to teach us that to 
save a life is to save an entire world and to destroy a life is to destroy an entire world. Um, but another reason they say is that it shows the greatness of God. Why? Because when a human being mints a coin um, using the same mold, all those coins come out looking the same. But when God mints a coin with one mold and then produces more coins in the mold of that initial uh, 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 seal, no two human beings are exactly alike. And that shows God's, God's greatness is reflected in diversity, right? So how much more amazing, how much greater is God when we live in a self-surpassing, expanding universe that, um, that, that creates, it shouldn't, but it does, creates um, all, in, increasingly more diversity, right? And self-generates more diversity within it, right? How, how much greater is, is God in that kind of universe um, than in a, a universe that is um, uh, static and, um, and, and solitary. I appreciate that take because we often look at it, that text as talking about celebrating the diversity of uh, humankind on earth. But if we look at it on the grander scale of this universe, and I think you're right, uh, that there are plenty of uh, biblical text and rabbinic texts that support the idea of us being just a small speck in the larger universe. Psalm, right, right. We see it in the Psalms. We see it where Psalm 145 talks about God's kingdom is a kingdom spanning all olamim, all worlds. And so we talk about olam as earth, but it's talking about it in plural, right? You just acknowledge that in the Mishnah, that there are multiple worlds, multiple planets, potentially, certainly multiple life forms. And I think the Zohar, the Jewish mystics, really explore this idea. They acknowledge that they had a real intimate relationship with um, the sky, and, and with the stars. And they said that the stars are without number. Each star is called a separate worlds. These are the worlds without number. The question is, how do we explore those worlds? You know, for me, I wonder at times, the things that keep us up at night, rightly so, uh, because we talk about this a lot in this podcast. We talk about it a lot in the tour that we teach, Mike, that's, we feel society, at least in our country, is at a crossroads um, and we're on, on the precipice of something great or of potentially our demise. Uh, and I wonder, when we look at the universe on the grand scale, what does that mean? When we look at the universe on the grand scale and are reminded that, yeah, there may be other life forms on other planets we're going to explore. And when the the shuttle gets high enough in the sky, you can't even see earth anymore. It's just a little blue marble, as you said. Do we spend too much time and energy focused on these things that in God's grand universe are unimportant, even if they are so important to our everyday lives, to the well-being of each human being? Are, are we missing the bigger picture ignoring the grand scale when we focus on these things that affect some human beings on some part of earth, but don't affect most of this large universe that we haven't even explored yet. You know, it's a, it's a great question. I think it does go back 
to uh, that teaching from Reb Simchabunim that you quoted before, right? That, um, you know, a person should always remember uh, two things. One, a paradox, right? One, you know, that the world was created for me. And two, that I'm but dust and ashes, right? So, um, so on, you know, and, and so we need to do both of those things, right? So on, in, in the first, right, that, that the world was created for me, um, a recognition that what impacts me or what impacts, uh, uh, you know, our sort of immediate sphere, both literally and figuratively, um, uh, is important, right? That, uh, that, that human life matters, uh, that, uh, uh, that human welfare matters, that human happiness matters. Uh, you know, my, my personal happiness matters, and so does yours, right? And so does, um, you know, the, the general welfare, as it's, you know, said in the U.S. Constitution, right? Like, those things actually matter. Like, they don't just figuratively matter. They don't relatively matter. Um, they, 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 they really matter, right? And, and we should be concerned with those things, right? It's also, I think, you know, why we have a tradition that is, you know, that, that kind of holds the paradox between the, um, the particular and the universal, Right, and so sometimes those things come into tension. Right, we when we say, you know, should Jews be focused on, you know, kind of inner Jewish communal concerns? Should we direct our uh, energy and attention to uh, to the needs of the Jewish community, or should we be concerned with the, you know, you know, wider world, the wider community? Um, you know, and sometimes those things can come into tension, and there there is, I think, meaningful debate and conversation to happen in those places where the tension holds. Um, but ultimately, our tradition says you need to be concerned with both of those things. And on some level, we, um, we, we have a sort of particularistic religion. We kind of like hold um, uh, our, our own kind of immediate sphere of concerns um, as dear in order to teach us that the, that, that, um, that the rest of creation also matters, right? That like, because we see ourselves as mattering, the rest of creation matters too. So, um, you know, so, so that I think is, is part and parcel of, um, of, of what Jewish tradition teaches. So it's, so yes, I think that the Jewish tradition would say that even though we are a tiny speck, um, you know, uh, orbiting an insignificant star, right? Um, uh, that, that nevertheless, um, we have a responsibility to be concerned with what happens here. That is true about um, humanity. Um, and it's also true of um, the rest of creation as well, at least as, you know, within our, um, uh, with, within our, the, the, the extent to which we can impact you know, the, that sphere, which is, you know, uh, mostly about what happens on this planet. So I think that that's true. Um, I, and I think that that matters. But on the other hand, we say, you know, that we're dust and ashes. So we recognize also that, that on, you know, in the grand cosmic scheme of things, um, we're, we're, we're not so significant. That, I think, is, you know, meant to, first of all, kind of like, uh, keep us in check and, and um, keep us in perspective. That's true about how we relate to the rest of the world as well, right? That also, you know, says that like my personal interests and concerns um, are not necessarily more important or even as important as yours or the rest of creation, right? So what I want and need, um, if it negatively impacts, um, you know, a, 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 a um, an, an ecosystem that, you know, is outside of my personal ecosystem, um, that 
should still be a calculation that I make, right? That, that, uh, that I shouldn't only be concerned with, with my own thing. Um, but also a, you know, a, a, a recognition, maybe a, a psychological recognition, a psychological kind of release to say um, that, uh, that not only are my needs not ultimately important, uh, but also my successes and failures are not ultimately important either. That there's something you know much much bigger than myself. Um, so I think well, it goes that that, back to the Mishnah that you were teaching, right? That that the idea that the word olam, the word world, has two very specific meanings. That world refers to a single person and world refers to the entire universe. And so what happens to a single person should be held up in the very same way to things that impact the entire world, be that our, our earth, our planet, or the greater universe, but they're, uh, we, we hold them up the same. They're equally important. We can't put one above the other. Right. You know. I, I've been thinking during this conversation about um, a, a really, really powerful um, spoken word song or, or poem uh, that uh, is by an African-American uh, poet uh, in uh, 1970 named Gil Scott Heron. And since we're probably not going to end up talking about Lovecraft Country, I want to just mention this poem uh, because it was featured very prominently in, in one of the episodes of Lovecraft Country on HBO. Um, so it's called Whitey on the Moon. Uh, and, it, and it reads like this. I'll just read a couple of the uh, verses of it. A rat done bit my sister Nell with Whitey on the Moon. Her face and arms began to swell and Whitey's on the moon. I can't pay no doctor bill, but Whitey's on the moon. 10 years from now, I'll be paying still while Whitey's on the moon. The man just upped my, rep, rep, my rent last night because Whitey's on the moon. No hot water, no toilets, no lights, but Whitey's on the moon. So I think that that goes to this conversation, right? And, and, and you know, relates, ties back to the beginning of, of our discussion about the right stuff and, and the Mercury program, you know, and the space program in general, which is, you know, um, you know, how much uh, of our, you know, when we're weighing this calculation between the sort of like immediate needs of, you know, people here on earth versus our sort of like larger human need to kind of explore worlds beyond. Um, how do we, where, where's the right balance, right? Um, and I think that that's what's being raised in that, uh, in that poem is, you know, we, we in 1969, we spent, you know, billions of dollars to put, you know, two white men uh, on the moon, um, while uh, simultaneously, you know, civil rights progress uh, stalled. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, Martin Luther King uh, Jr. was assassinated, you know, 1968, a year before uh, the Apollo 11 mission, you know, and on and on. Um, you know, so, so where should the balance be, morally speaking, ethically speaking, Jewishly speaking, between, you know, the, that, you know, the, the Sam Seaborn uh, drive for, you know, exploring what's next and recognizing that, you know, those resources um, could also make a difference, um, you know, in, in what's right now? Well, I don't think they're mutually exclusive, right? That we're taught the very beginning of, of our vote that, the th one of the three pillars that holds up our world is Gimilud Chasadim, that without looking out for the well-being of others, without caring about somebody 
and laws that impact somebody, even if they don't directly impact me, if we don't do that, if we don't look out, if, if we don't create a just society, then the world crumbles, our worlds. But we also still are required to look out and explore the, the greater world. There's actually a, a very funny story uh, that was told about the Lubavitcher Rebbe that uh, there was an observant Jew who was a microbiologist who was recruited by NASA to explore, to see if there's life on Mars. And he was very concerned. He's like, does me exploring if there's life on Mars go against Jewish beliefs and ask the Lubavitcher Rebbe? And he said, what am I supposed to do? And uh, Rabbi Schneerson said, you should look if there's life on Mars. And if there's not life on Mars, then you should look somewhere else on another planet and another planet and another planet. Because if you say that there's no life on any planet except the planet Earth, then you're actually putting limitations onto God's role as creator, uh, which is a, also a very specific theology that I believe the Rebbe had and uh, Chabad has and that sort of thing. But I think that that is quite telling, right? The idea that to explore the universe, I think you're right, allows us to see God as not creator as this puppet watching over us, pulling strings, but really to see God as um, this vast inventor. And it's up to us to see what we do with God's invention. Can we uh, circle back uh, to a another issue that, that the show raises, which is um, how we think about our, our heroes. You know, one of the things I think that the right stuff is, is trying to do is, is demythologize, uh, you know, the, the, um, the space program. And, you know, this is a trend I think that's, that's happening now. You know, I think uh, in part for good and in part, I think that's a, a, an interesting cultural, larger cultural question to, 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 um, explore. Uh, but I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, the, the movie from a couple of years back uh, called First Man with Ryan Gosling as Neil Armstrong, which is sort of in the same vein. Uh, and uh, there was an episode of The Crown uh, that came out last year, uh, which uh, um, had Prince Philip uh, having a sort of existential or midlife crisis uh, that, uh, that, that was generated by the Apollo mission. Uh, and, you know, he became incredibly disillusioned when he actually met the astronauts and realized that they were not particularly interesting at all. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, you know, and so I think the right stuff is doing this too, is saying, you know, here are these people that, uh, you know, growing up, you know, we're, we're always kind of heralded as heroes to me. I didn't know anything about John Glenn, even though he was a public figure for, you know, while I was, uh, he, he died in 2016. He was, he was, a, he was senator. a senator from Ohio. So he was a public figure basically my whole life, but I basically didn't know anything about him other than the fact that he was the first person to orbit the earth. Um, Alan Shepard too, right? I didn't know anything about him other than the fact that he was the first person to leave the earth's atmosphere. The first American to leave the Earth's atmosphere, uh, and so you know, but 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 the show is really kind of giving us a sense of the of the flaws and the failings that the humanity of of these people for for good and for ill. Um, to me, there seems something very biblical about that because when I you know when I look at the Torah, right, the Torah doesn't present us with with our heroes as you know flawless characters, right? It doesn't. Um, you know, it, it really does, it demythologizes, I think, um, people like Abraham and Moses, right? They're, they're, they're flawed 
uh, human people who make mistakes and um, do things that are questionable. Um, you know, there's a tendency that we have to, you know, to, you know, rabbinic tradition does this, you know, a lot, which is to, to sand off those edges and say, you know, the heroes are heroes, the villains are villains, right? There's, you know, clear good, clear evil. Um, but the Torah really doesn't seem to do that. The Torah really seems to demythologize those, those heroes. And so I, I, I wonder what you think, Jesse, like, is, is that for good or is that for, for bad? Like the, 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 the attempt to like really humanize the heroes and show us um, the, the kind of process by which, you know, with our consent, I mean, in the broadest sense, our consent, right, that we, you know, that we acquiesce to the, uh, you know, uh, mythologizing of, of um, those figures and, and those heroes and making them larger than life. I think you're absolutely right, Mike, that Judaism goes uh, to great lengths to make sure that we don't do that with our biblical patriarchs and matriarchs. I think that actually is one of the things that distinguishes our faith from uh, other Western religions, um, that uh, we don't give anybody a Messiah complex, pun intended, uh, but I believe we don't build we don't build statues, monuments of people. Sure. Yeah. Um, but I believe that it also is meant to teach us something really important about each of us that we do not strive for perfection because perfection does not exist. That even Moses, who saw God face to face, panim al panim, who uh, the Torah ends. We just read it on Sabbath Torah, the very ending verses of Torah, that no other prophet arose uh, across Israel that was like Moses, Moses didn't get to enter the promised land because Moses was flawed and Moses failed and Moses didn't live up to Moses's potential. So I think some of it is comforting knowing that uh, we are all flawed, uh, knowing that we're just coming off of the Yamim Noraim, the days of awe, that we acknowledge that even when we try to be our best versions of ourselves, we will fail. We said that during the Kol Nidre prayer, that we acknowledge that we're going to break lots of promises. We're going to break lots of vows, uh, not in the past year, but actually going forward in this year, we're going to fail again. I think we hold our leaders up to uh, on a pedestal at times. And if we- expect, Sometimes literally. Yeah. And if we expect perfection, we'll be disappointed. That being said, I think- there has to be a, an in-between, right? Between what we used to do, holding them up to, to this sense of moral perfection and where we are now, where right, respectfully, President Trump has brought us so far down in what is seen as acceptable for a leader to talk, to act, to say, both on the personal level and also the way that he, he treats other people that we, we sort of brush it off. And it's this um, tornado, this storm of aggressive and inappropriate and immoral behavior that we don't remember any of it because there's so much of it where any other presidential administration a single one of the tweets he makes or a single word he says or a single misdeed would have been the end of that administration. But he does so much of it and he doesn't care because that's who he is. And uh, respectfully, I think his supporters don't care either because they care about the things that he preaches, the sort of uh, nationalism and, and I have to say that the bigotry, whether it's conscious or subconscious, 
we have to hold our leaders to a higher standard. I don't think they need to be perfect. I don't think they need to be amazing, incredible, inspirational. I think we need to understand like the Mercury 7, they are everyday people in some regards. But astronauts are different than elected representatives, right? Astronauts are chosen by NASA because of their skills. That is not who we vote for for Congress. That is not who we vote for for Senate. That is not who we vote for for president in the United States. And we should expect something from them. Listen, there was a, a scandal with the Democratic nominee for Senate in North Carolina, which is a, a seat that the Democrats really hope to flip uh, about um, sexual immorality. And it's not even a blip on the radar from a news media perspective, from a polling perspective, because it pales in comparison of, with regards to what is seen as acceptable for elected officials to do and say and act in this current climate because of this current president. So I would say we should not expect perfection, but I think we should expect something. We should expect morals and ethics. Yeah, I, the, way I, the way I've uh, phrased it in the past is, um, uh, you know, we're, 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 we're in a culture that, um, that lionizes greatness, um, you know, that, and that even manifests in the language of political campaigns from time to time. Um, but, uh, but what Jewish tradition wants is not greatness, but goodness. Um, and, you know, and so that's, that's ultimately what we should look, expect for ourselves and expect for each other and expect, uh, you know, above all in, in our leaders um, is, is not, you know, not whether they are going to end up carved onto, a, you know, the face of a mountain or whether they're going to, you know, uh, have a statue um, uh, of them, you know, placed in, in the midst of our cities um, on a pedestal, um, but, but rather, you know, um, uh, whether they are sort of, you know, uh, whether they, they personally have the, the characteristics that, you know, our tradition and others would, would qualify as, as, as goodness, um, and whether the, the acts that they do um, affect goodness, right? And it's, it's, it needs to be both of those things, right? Because there are people that would, that would excuse um, the sort of interpersonal behavior, the, 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 um, the attitude um, that seems to be expressed, you know, time and again from, you know, this president um, that, uh, that, you know, we're, we're now today uh, uh, in the beginning of the um, Senate Judiciary hearings for uh, Judge Amy Coney Barrett for her appointment to the Supreme Court. Um, and so, you know, plenty of people, you know, will excuse uh, attitudes and behaviors um, because they feel like it's in the service of something that they view as as good. So it's it's both it's both those things. It's not only pursuing what at least is good in your eyes, right? The end of that is good in your eyes, but also um, making sure that the means by which you pursue that end um, is, is also uh, in line with that goodness. Um, you know. So and I think Judaism would would argue for both of those things right that that not only it's not that the ends justify the means um it's also not always that the means 
uh, justify the ends, right? So it's not it's not only true in Judaism that like you, you know just because you sort of are interpersonally kind um, and and practice righteous um, that it excuses your you know sort of inaction for the wider public good, right? Um, you can't just like privately be a good person um, and not also try to um, you know affect a just society. Right, um, you need to have both of those things, um, but uh, but I think ultimately it would say yes. Of course, perfection is not the ideal because none of us can attain it. Um, that um, that that we should none of us see each other um, as you know representing um, a, a, an uncompromised ideal. Right, we shouldn't like I mentioned before, we shouldn't erect monuments to each other um, because they tend to. Uh, wash away, you know, the, the, the sort of flawed humanity that all of us possess and um, minimize the ways in which we, um, all of us, uh, have, have, you know, not always lived up to our highest ideals or accomplished everything that we could have accomplished in, in our lives if we, you know, had really dedicated ourselves to it, right? So we don't erect statues to each other. Um, but on, uh, you know, uh, so we don't strive for perfection and we don't um, imagine that each other, you know, any, any of us, you know, are more perfect than, than the other. Um, but at the same time, you know, strive uh, both for, you know, inner goodness and outer goodness. Um, that we, we may not, you know, uh, work for greatness. Uh, greatness is, is not likely the ideal. The, you know, um, greatness is, uh, is, is very rarely reflected in the Bible. Um, and in rabbinic literature, when it is, um, it is uh, it, it's usually reflected derisively. You know, Pharaoh wants to make himself in Egypt great, right? We don't really love Pharaoh so much. Um, uh, Haman wants to be a great man, right? Uh, but uh, but he's of course an evil uh, figure in in biblical literature. Um, and so we we strive not for greatness, but for but for goodness, and that's that's ultimately the the ideal. And that I think is one of the dynamics at play. And the right stuff is, you know, um, I think that that John Glenn seems to me the 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 figure in the show that is that that is 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 kind of holding that tension of wanting to be good, but also striving for something that's great. Um, and we'll see how that plays out in the show. Whereas, you know, there are others that are striving for greatness and see good as a sphere that is um, totally separate from that. Right, right, right. right. So I think uh, our goal in this 5781 new year is to not strive to be great, but to strive to be good. For each of us to strive to be better than we were last year and uh, to never stop making all worlds better each and every world for each human being and never stop exploring the greater world to appreciate our role in this world, this vast world that God has created and continues to create each and every day. And hey, Jesse, we should reach for the moon because even if we don't get there, we'll always end up landing among the stars. Until next time, I am Rabbi Jesse Olitsky. I'm Rabbi Michael Knopf. Take care, everyone. Don't forget to vote. <laughs>